In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajjil Okay, brothers. Awalan assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. So for, I think, uh, a few of you, you've been uh, away for a few of the lectures. So last couple of lectures, we, one of the lectures, we had more of an informal discussion, and the other one, we did a recap of uh, pretty much the sequencing of all of the uh, lectures that we've had. So we're not going to repeat that, inshallah, today we're going to continue where we left off. So as a reminder, we were in a very specific topic once we talked about the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the proofs for his existence we spent a little bit of time starting to talk about materialism specifically so we explained I think to enough detail what materialism is what it entails what it means what is it built on its main principles and then we started <clears throat> refuting it we started showing dismantling it uh, point by point, and trying to concentrate on the things that today are perhaps the most common uh, attacks and what may seem like the strongest attacks on non-materialism, on anyone who does not believe in what they call reductionist, a reductionist worldview, a worldview that is reduced to, reductionist, reduced to matter. So sometimes they call it physicalism or materialism. So, very quickly, just as a reminder, materialism is a belief. It's an ideology, it's a worldview. It's one way you interpret everything that you see in the world, that you witness and experience in the world, based on the principle that only matter can exist. There is nothing else but matter in existence. And we said, as a result of that, you also believe that Every phenomenon that you experience, that you witness, must also be only matter and energy and matter and energy interacting with each other. And that to know anything, you must know it through material means, so you rely on the empirical senses. There is no other way. And nothing else but matter exists. Matter in one form or another, whether it's matter or energy, since they are transferable one unto the other. So the main ideas that we try to understand, first of all, we talked about materialism in general. And we explained what the issues are with each one of these, let's call them principles. And then we said, let's spend a little bit more time concentrating on a few specific claims or a few specific areas where materialism seems to be a lot stronger nowadays. The first one had to do with the beginning of the universe, the beginning of existence, right? And so we, we brought Lawrence Krauss's book and we went through it, the claim that there can be a universe out of nothing or something out of nothing, and what that ex actually means. Is it possible? Is it the nothing that everybody believes in and understands when the word nothing is said, or is it a completely different kind of nothing, which is actually a something, not a nothing? So that was one one, uh, one branch or one wing of, of our discussion. 
we spent also a little bit of time looking at life itself. So we spent a little bit of time trying to understand if we only look at matter and material means, to what extent can we explain the origin of life? And of course for this we relied on some of the greatest specialists of the world in the origin of life topic, and we said that topic is even outside the rest of the fields in biology and evolutionary biology or evolution theory. It's abiogenesis, so this new field that combines uh, astrophysics with geology, with biology, with, 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 with. And basically they come up with a very complex theory on how life could have emerged out of non-life. Okay, and we made links between that and spontaneous generation and all of that. Okay, so that was the second topic. The third topic that I was hoping that we could address has to do with the difference that we find in ourselves, if there is one, as human beings. So this in itself can become a number of lectures if we wanted to really get into the details of this topic. That's one. And two, from there we're going to combine it. We're going to combine that topic, that question about the specificity, the uniqueness of a human being with the mind. The point of all of this is to see if we believe in a materialistic, materialist worldview, can we explain this uniqueness of human beings or not? Actually, is there anything unique to human beings or not from the point of view of materialism? And is there something special? Is there something unique? Is there something that really requires thinking about about the mind, if we believe in a materialist versus a non-materialist worldview. So, if you're a materialist, the, the mind is just like part of you. It's not really like a soul or anything like that, or anything out of the extraordinary. Yeah. So, a quick remark, and then we'll we'll get into that. The quick remark is this: this topic that we're linking human beings to the mind. It should actually deserve many, many lectures. At least three solid, big, solid lectures. Okay? But I'm trying to combine them into one today just to touch on the main topics that one could research and address and think about here. If you guys are really interested, we can come back on any of this and explain it in a lot more detail. Otherwise, the idea is that with this, inshallah, lecture, we would have kind of given a good overview of materialism, we know what it is, we know a few of its big claims and our position towards them, and then we can go back continuing where we left off with the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, finishing them through with the justice, because that's where we were. We were about to start talking about divine justice and the problem of evil in the world, and do we have a freedom of choice or not, that topic which was very interesting to many of you when we first said that we're going to be talking about it, and we spent actually a couple of lectures answering a lot of questions about it. So this is where we were in the linear progression of our topics, and so this is what we would go back to. So based on what I'll hear and the interest that we get, we can decide to spend a lot more time in the topics we're going to talk about today, 
or if this is good enough for the issue, the topic, the theme of materialism, then we'll put it to rest for now, and then we'll continue with where we left off with divine justice and so on and so forth. The big topics that are usually studied under uh, divine justice. So the problem of evil in the world, uh, the freedom of choice, and uh, what does it mean to talk about qada and qadar and predestination and all of that. Okay? So to go back to the questions that we just had, which is basically, if you're a materialist, what do you believe about the mind? Of course, if you're a materialist, you're going to say, and there are books written about this with this, more than one book written with the title of We Are Our Brain, or The Mind Is Nothing But The Brain, or There's Nothing Beyond The Brain, and so on and so forth. So what they mean by the brain is this actual gray matter in our, inside our cranium, this is everything there is. There is nothing beyond that. And this is an important distinction which I was going to make a little bit later, but it's an excellent point. So our starting point right now is we're basically combining two or three topics together. Each one of them can be studied on its own. The first one has to do with human beings. How I propose to study the topic, and we're not going to go in depth at all today, we're just skimming like a little bit of the, about the topic, the one way to study this whole question about human, humanity or human beings is to spend a lot of time on what does the theory of evolution say and does it hold or does it not hold? Okay? Does it survive scrutiny? Can we actually explore what it says? Can the theory of evolution explain to us where we came from in evolutionary terms or is there a gap right now, just like there was for the beginning of life? So that's one side. Another way we study this, so it could be together, and this is what I'm proposing to do today, but again, we're not going in depth, is to look at a human being more philosophically. So, of course, this is what the theory of evolution says, and we can spend a lot of time looking at DNA, looking at chromosomes, looking at the evolution, and what, comparing it with DNA of other creatures, and to what extent are we animals or not, and so on and so forth. But then there is the rest of the human being that may not be fully explainable with these terms. And this is what we're going to try to do today too. Okay? But this becomes a completely different way of addressing this question. More philosophical. From there, we're going to take, it, take one part of that, which is the mind, and drill down into a little bit more. What do we mean by the mind? Is it really fully explainable? And this is our only question for now. This is not about explaining what the mind is. We're not trying to do that right now. This would require a lot of lectures, and at the end we would not have an answer. All we're trying to do is to see if someone says, I'm a materialist, or materialism is the only coherent, proper way of thinking about the world, can we really explain all the activity of the mind today? Based on what we know today, and I'm sure in the future things will change, but based on what we know today, can we explain the mind in the broader sense or not? Okay, so that's what the, the, basically the, the, what we're going to try to do today, very quickly. Okay? So, instead of me talking too much, again, I thought I'd give you a little bit of a, a flavor or a hint from a few books. I always say, I, I hope this encourages you to read more. That's, that's why I do it. And maybe it's a, a little bit less... It doesn't look like I'm coming up with stuff on my own. I'm actually reading it from books so that you know and 
This is all very easily reliable information that you can use if you're discussing with anyone else. And I give you the, this, each one of these, I can give you 10, 15 more books about the same topic, talking in the same way and, you know, addressing all of these things. So I'll just, I give you examples of these. So this is a book called Human by Design. Okay, and this is not really a book about uh, theory of evolution or any of that. He's really talking about how human beings as individuals and as a society, what we should be striving towards. Okay, so it's a lot more compassion and love and, and, and. Okay, but there are a few pages in there where he goes, uh, the author is Greg Braden. He goes into this discussion about, can we really explain where human beings come from if we concentrate only on the theory of evolution? Okay, so he talks, there are a few, it's not a lot, it's a, really it's one chapter that talks a lot more about this. So I thought I'd read a few passages from here, okay? So I'm at page 44, and the last passage that I'll read, I think is at page 58, okay? So these are the pages, if you want to really look only into this, although you could read the whole book. The first part of the book is a little bit more natural science, the second part is a lot more about compassion and psychology and love and things like that. Okay, interesting book. So on page 44, a few passages. I'm not going to comment too much because we'll, we won't finish today. Okay, uh, stated another way, we still look and function as uh, when we look at human beings. Okay, so he's going through DNA and going through the manner in which if we analyze the, the genes and chromosomes of people, he says, stated another way, we still look and function as they did, those human beings, 2,000 centuries ago. 2,000 centuries ago. Despite our incredible technological achievements, a 2008 study of certain remains, still called Cro-Magnon at that time, performed by collaborating geneticists from the universities of Ferrara and Florence in Italy, tells us that these similarities are more than superficial. Researchers report a Cro-Magnoid individual who lived in southern Italy 28,000 years ago was a modern European genetically as well as anatomically. Okay, so this is the beginning of the idea that I'm, I'm relating, okay? So you can already see a little bit of something here. And then he starts going to the Human Genome Project, okay? So all of you should know a little bit about this right now. One of the biggest projects ever undertaken where they went through the entire human genetic code and they tried to analyze it and come up with an explanation for what every gene does to the extent that they can. So he says, genetic mapping revealed that there is only 1% difference that separates us from chimpanzees. Or conversely stated, we share over 98% of the same DNA. Okay, so this is usually provided as proof that, you know, there's really not that much difference between us and them, right? So he continues, so keep this in mind. When the mapping methods were applied beyond primates, the results were equally astounding. For instance, we share 60% of our DNA with a fruit fly. So are we 60% fruit fly? 80% with a cow. 90% with a common house cat. We obviously don't look or act like a fly or a cow or a cat. The big question that comes from such revelations is this. If we have so much in common with other creatures genetically, then why are we so different from them? And this is what we're going to talk about. Are we really that different or not? Okay, that will be the, the second portion. The answer to this question goes back to an unexpected discovery made during, you know, uh, this human genome project that a single gene can be activated in different ways. 
So it's not as simple as someone telling you, we share that much of the genetic code. Because it doesn't mean that the way the code is being activated, the way each part of the code functions is the same. This was something that was discovered during the Human Genome Project. Each part of the code could work in a different way. Okay? A single gene can be activated in different ways and to different degrees to do, to do different things. What this tells us is that it's not so much about what genes we have in common with chimps, cows, flies, and cats. It's more about how those genes are activated or usually they call it expressed. How are they expressed? A gene called FOXP2, now understood to be directly linked to our ability to form complex speech, is a perfect example of what I mean here. So this gene, and he's going to talk a little bit more about it, this gene is very specific to human beings. Why? So he talks a little bit about the history and what they discovered and how they got there, and then he says, they also determined that the human version of the gene had changed and, or mutated at some point in the past, and that, that change happened quickly, not slowly and gradually as the theory of evolution would suggest. Now researchers at the David Jeffen School of Medicine at UCLA had determined that this change happened precisely at a critical moment in the unfolding of, human of the human story. According to these scientists, the mutation happened rapidly, this is, he's quoting, rapidly around the same time that language emerged in humans. This was a pivotal discovery because for the first time a specific set of mutations in FOXP2 was scientifically linked to our capacity to create human language. Later he continues, a BBC News World Edition report clarifies that this relationship stating that our capacity for language happened when, he quotes, changes to two single letters of the DNA code, the representation of the building blocks of amino acids, arose in the last 200,000 years of human evolution. Suddenly, two parts of the genetic code fused together about 200,000 years ago. Why? How? No one knows. It just looks like something suddenly happened, and then human beings now had this new faculty that we'll talk about in a second called speech that really distinguishes human beings from the rest of the animal world. Okay, so this happened out of the blue 200,000 years ago from an evolutionary perspective. He continues, the speed and precision of the mutations in FOXP2 occurring in just the right two places in the DNA code are further examples of the kind of change that does not lend itself to the theory of evolution, at least not as we understand the theory today. Why did the changes happen in the way they did? What could have caused just the right shift of DNA letters just at the right place within just the right chromosome to give us the extraordinary ability to share our feelings over a candlelight dinner for two and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so he talks about what we can do with speech. So that's one point. The second point is on page 50. He says, in the language of researchers describing this discovery, the fusion was either accompanied or followed by inactivation or elimination of one of the ancestral central mirrors, as well as by events which stabilize the fusion point. Okay, he's going to add it. I know no one understood those words. While this language is admittedly complex, the message is clear and simple. The study is telling us that during the fusion, where those two parts of the code fuse together, 
or immediately afterward, the overlapping functions from what were originally two separate chromosomes were either adjusted, turned off, or removed altogether to make the new single chromosome more efficient. Okay? So more changes had to happen. And they happened right away, very quickly, to make us a lot more different than we find in other animals that share with us a lot of the genetic code. So at the end of this, he summarizes this whole section by saying, human chromosome 2, the second largest chromosome in the human body, is the result of an ancient DNA fusion that cannot be explained by the theory of evolution as we understand it today. Okay, now I'm going to jump to page 56. This is going to be the beginning of the next topic. So the next topic is to what extent are we animal and to what extent are we not. So if we're not, we have to look at the traits we find in human beings. When we look at the way human beings are, can we explain them as we explain everything we find in, a in an animal? So if we see an animal can do A and B and C and D and do this and not do that, Anyone who really understands nature and they spend enough time studying that animal should be able to say, and this is the reason why that animal has this. This is why, and this is what they do in the theory of evolution. They say, this is why this animal has wings, and this is why this animal has this type of tongue, and this is why this animal has that type of nail, right? Okay, so the same thing we should be able to do for human beings. In the final chapter of his book, Contributions to the Theory of Natural Selection, published in 1870, Wallace, so this is the other guy working with Darwin, leaves no doubt with his readers about what he's saying. Natural selection would only have endowed savage man with a brain a little superior to that of an ape. That's the only thing that makes sense. If we were living with them, and natural selection worked the way that that theory of evolution says it, it did, then there is no reason for one of the creatures to go in a different path and to evolve abilities and tools and mechanisms and brains that are capable of doing a lot more. Right? So this is one of the guys who was one of the staunchest defenders of the theory of evolution and natural selection, and that's his whole thing. That's his whole book. It's contributions to the theory of natural selection. Okay? And he's saying, natural selection would only have endowed savage man with a brain a little superior to that of an ape. Whereas he actually possesses one very little inferior to that of a philosopher. Right? So what in nature would make, would require, would necessitate that the human being suddenly develops a brain that is useful for a philosopher, for instance. So he's talking about those that were alive at the same time as the primates from which we descended, right? Or that we lived with them at the same time. He's talking thousands of centuries ago, and he's saying their brains were already a little inferior to that of a philosopher. Why? What happened there? And that's the question that we cannot answer. So he, he finalizes, he finishes all of this with, by saying, the author, humans appeared on the earth with the same advanced brains and nervous systems we have today and with the ability to self-regulate vital functions already developed, contradicting the corollary to evolution theory that nature doesn't over-endow with such features until they are needed. And this is the entire theory 
of natural selection. And the theory of evolution is based on the idea that nature is not going to give you something unless it's absolutely necessary for your survival. No matter what creature you are. If you've been given something, it's because you absolutely need it right now. It has to give you an advantage in either reproducing or surviving. Otherwise, nature would not push you in that direction. That's the whole idea of natural selection. Right? So, it cannot blindly give you, let's say, the brain of a philosopher, unless philosophy is a necessity of your environment for your reproduction or survival right now. That's what we're saying. So anything else you look at in nature, you can explain it. But then you come to the human being and you start seeing all these abilities. And you're like, it doesn't make sense that that human, primitive human being living in nature, absolutely capable of nothing more than what a primate, other primates do, is suddenly endowed with all these capabilities. Capable of speech and capable of abstract thought. And we'll talk in a second about that. Okay, so I'll finish with this and we'll go to the second book. A growing body, so he's finishing, he's summarizing this, he's a little box, it's called Key 13. A growing body of physical and DNA evidence suggests that our species may have appeared 200,000 years ago with no evolutionary path leading to our appearance. Okay, so this is his summary for this entire section. So, long story short, what I wanted to, to get from this book is there are huge issues with the theory of evolution explaining many parts, many dimensions, many aspects of a human being. It may explain a lot for other creatures, but when you come to a human being, you hit a wall. Unless you don't go into the details and you just accept it at, at face value. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you're going to have a lot of trouble trying to see the jump into the first human being. What happened? Why was that necessary? Is it an environmental thing? Is it something that would happen 2,000 centuries ago, like others are saying? What happened? That suddenly we needed this extremely powerful, conceptual, abstract thought that did not exist before. Did nature know that we need to think in, let's say, mathematics and do algebra? Or do philosophy and think abstractly about notions? What happened? Okay. Is that jump part of the missing link, they call it? So that is going to be part of the missing link, or the intermediary. Okay, and this is going to be an assumption. Now I'm going to read a couple, just two pages, I think. A tiny little part, because it's going to be our, our link to looking at the human being a little bit more philosophically. So I just read a passage from Wallace. So now he's this other guy, uh, Roger Scruton. Uh, who wrote a book on human nature. He's a philosopher. He has a lot of books. This is one of them. He says, When Darwin and Wallace first hit on the idea of natural selection, the question arose whether our many higher characteristics, so the characteristics that we have that are a lot more complex than we find in the rest of the primates, such as morality, self-consciousness, we're going to come back to these, symbolism, art, the interpersonal emotions, create such a gap between us and the lower animals as to demand explanation of another kind. We can't explain it. So Darwin and Wallace are wondering, do we really 
can we really explain with natural selection, with, the the with our theory of evolution, can we really explain all of these higher characteristics that we only find in human beings? Wallace at first thought that they did, that their theory is good enough, and he kept thinking about it, but later changed his mind, coming to the conclusion that there is a qualitative, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, a qualitative leap. It means a jump of quality, a jump of kind. There's a break. We're going into something completely different. Okay, A qualitative leap in the order of things, setting the highest faculties of humankind in a different category from those features that we share with our evolutionary neighbors. As he put it, we are endowed with the intellectual and moral powers superfluous to evolutionary requirements. If we're only limited to what nature needs, to our natural needs in, the, in nature, in the world, then all of these things that were just mentioned, our ability to understand art and to think symbolically and to build interpersonal relationships, all this is, is superfluous. It's things that are not really needed. Right? It's in addition to our actual needs in nature. So he's saying if they are superfluous, then we can't explain them with natural evolution, with the theory of evolution. And the existence of these powers could therefore not be explained by natural selection for fitness. I have nothing to do with them. That I can think, that I can understand art, that I can think in symbolic terms, is not going to allow me to be more fit for survival. That's what one of the two guys who were building the theory of evolution was saying. So he would know what he's talking about when he says fittest for survival and theory of evolution and natural selection. Okay? Now, to go to a point that was just made, how are we different? So how are human beings different? So here we touched on a point which is the difference is a difference. There's something in, in when we study philosophy and logic, they say a difference can be a difference of quantity or quality. We can say the same thing in different words. A difference can be a difference of degree or of kind. Okay? When something is a difference of degree, it means that Simply by adding more, it becomes something else. But it's the same. It's just more of it. Less of it. If it's a difference in kind, no, no, it means we're talking about two different things. Okay? If I look at a baby apple and a big apple, this is a difference in degree. I add more time and more maturity to that apple, to the baby fetus, to a human being who is very a child, you add more time and maturity, it's a matter of degree, and they will get to what they're supposed to get to, a later stage, a big apple, an adult human being. If it's a difference in kind, well, if I look at a watermelon and an apple, no matter what I do to the apple, it will never become the watermelon, and vice versa. These, this is a difference in kind. Difference in kind. Okay? If I have a materialist worldview. If I believe that only matter exists and the, the only way for life to be what it is today is through the theory of evolution, then everything is a matter of degree. You give it more time, 
and you let it mature in a certain way, and then it will become something else. So how does this apply to a human being? If I look at myself as a human being and I take any other creature, if I believe this, then what do I have to say? I have no choice but to say this. Because I have no other mechanism, no other means to explain. So I'm going to say the difference between me and the other creature is a degree. So I'm an animal and they're an animal. I have intelligence, they have intelligence. I have emotions, they have emotions. The difference is in degree. Otherwise, everything exists. But you add more here. You take away, you make it less there, and you get that different entity. So, if, because we're going to be talking about the mind, so let's talk about the mind. So really, for the mind, it comes down to brain size. My brain and the brain of any other animal are basically the same. So if you could take the brain of that other animal and make it as big as mine, of course it's a ratio, okay? So you make it of the same ratio that a human being has, then you will have the same type of intelligence, the same type of complexity and thinking, same type of abstract thought. This is a difference in degree. But if you believe that it's a difference in kind, no, you're going to say, no matter what you do to the matter, there's something beyond matter that's taking place here that makes a human being think differently. The abstract thinking, the symbolic thinking, the ability of speech, rituals and religion and belief in God and all of that is not going to be explained only by degree. We're not just another animal, but more of whatever, more intelligent. No, no, there's a break and a new kind. Okay? You were going to say something? Okay, we may come back to it. We're just starting on this topic. Okay, so that's the first thing. Is the difference a difference of degree or kind? So our belief, people who are not materialist, we believe that there's a difference in kind. It's not one continuity, one continuum, and we're just later more of. No, no, it's not just more of. It's a break, it's a different line, it's some, there's something different here. That cannot be explained with just more quantity, more degree. Okay, or taken away just with less degree and less kind. Good? Okay. So there's a book called, there's a book written by a philosopher called Mortimer J. Adler, I read many years ago. I really advise if you guys are interested in this topic from a more philosophical point of view, but very interesting too. He does talk about the, the, the scientific aspect as well. It's called The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. Okay, it's a bigger book, but it's, it's a really easy, interesting read. He's one of the most, most accessible philosophers to read. You won't get bored. He writes beautifully and very clearly and very simply. Anyways, the book is called uh, Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. So in there, he basically presents his main arguments for what he's saying, which is the difference between a human being and an animal is a difference in kind, not a difference in degree. And he gives a lot of explanation and very detailed, it's beautifully constructed, but really it comes down to one big idea, which is our ability as human beings to think conceptually. 
He declines, he derives everything he needs, all the differences he's going to build from that idea. Now, I don't want to argue whether that's correct or not, but that idea in itself is very strong. There is nothing else that has the conceptual thinking that we are going to find. So in summary, we, we find in human beings. So in summary, what he says is, our ability to think conceptually is what differentiates us from animals. So do animals think? Well, it depends. Think, think, as in they have some mental operation. Yes, they do. We can show that for a lot of animals. So what's the difference? It says, ah, the difference is between perceptual thinking and conceptual thinking. So what's perceptual? Perceptual is basically when you perceive something. Your senses give you an information and then you do something with it, right? Animals, some animals we know for sure can do that. So what's special about a human being? His argument is human beings can go beyond that. For an animal, if there is no external stimulus, an animal's not going to sit there and think about, you know, something very abstractly. He thinks about it because he's confronted with it. He's not going to take that idea and think about it even though it's, there's nothing in his environment, in his perception, stimulating him. So it's a knee-jerk reaction. It's an action-reaction in the case of an animal. There's something in the environment that triggers a dolphin or a crow or a dog or a, any other animal to think, to think about something. Is that how we think? No. We can think conceptually. We create a concept in our mind that we can access at any time. And we can manipulate it. And we can derive and create other concepts out of it. An animal doesn't sit there and think about death. We may think there are animals, when they see death, they recognize it. There are even animals that seem to do certain very intelligent, ritualistic behaviors, elephants and others, especially the higher mammals, right? But do we have any evidence that would seem to indicate that an elephant thinks about death as he's just walking in the savannah, let's say? Do we have any evidence that they don't think about We don't. But we have no evidence that they do. So this is based on what we do know. What we do know is humans have evidence. Until proven otherwise. Until someone can show. This is why what they show is animals, and they've done a lot of tests for this, animals, some of them, have the ability to solve a problem. But they don't sit there and think about a problem to solve. They're confronted with a situation where they have to do not one step to get to the solution. They have to do eight steps. They have to do 10 steps. Uh, okay. So there is thinking, but the thinking is perceptual. It's stimulated by the outside. It's not based on concepts. So this is the point that he makes. And that was the, the point that was made here. So if you're a, what he says, if you're a Darwinist, or an animalist, or a materialist, just to use the same few different words, you basically have already assumed that your only option is that it's a difference of degree between us and animals. So it's, if it's a difference of degree because you cannot accept any other possibility, then you're going to spend your time looking for the missing link. 
I don't care if we have it or not. We're going to suppose that there is something that will explain the jump from the most advanced primate that we can come up with, like the bonobo or the chimpanzee right now, to the human being. Whether we find it today or not, we have to know, we have to believe that it exists, because there is no other option. So his problem in his book is saying, well, there are other options, but you have to be open to them. The other option is don't be a materialist or a Darwinist. Be open to the idea that there might be differences of kind and not degree between human beings and animals. Okay? So he goes into then an analysis about thinking. And what does it mean to say it's a conceptual thinking as opposed to a perceptual thinking? I'm not going to go into the details. Entire books have been written about how human beings have a complex abstract thought that is completely different from anything uh, animals can do. And then he, he gives some examples. And this is everything we're going to be talking about in a second. Some of the things that an, a human being can do, for instance... Some of the, the ideas that a human being can do that we would be very hard-pressed to show that any animal can reach this kind of concept. For instance, the concept of maybe death is something perceptual. Maybe. Okay, if you abstract it. If you see two, three, four, five deaths, then you can abstract the notion of death. Okay, something common to more than one thing. Maybe. What about the concept of truth? What about the concept of goodness? Can an animal recognize something as being good versus something being bad? Can an animal reach the notion of happiness? And think about it. Not only think about it, think about it to the point where they may become depressed because they think that they're not happy. Human beings don't only do that at their individual level, in my own bubble, in my own world, inside my own head. They do that at a collective level. As a society, we're not happy. We need to change. We need to work collectively. Now, this is a completely different level of abstraction. Okay, so now we're going in depth into the abstraction. Same thing with concept like freedom. Does an animal understand freedom? Or does an animal, we see it, we impose that notion on some behaviors of animals, but do they understand the notion of love? They feel something, but is it a notion in their head? And is it a notion in their mind? No. So these are the examples of when you look at perceptual versus conceptual, you see that there are things that are going to squarely fall under conceptual thought that cannot be found anywhere else in nature. Okay? So, of course, he goes from there because the whole point of the book is to show that it actually makes a difference. We can't say there's no difference. Who cares? He says, no, you're going to change your entire way of living. Because if you can have these notions, then you can classify nature and say this is another concept. This is a person and this is not a person. And if they are a person, then they have another concept, rights, that non-persons don't have. So you can use them as an object or not. You can use them and you can eat them or not. Right? This is all based on your 
conceptual thinking. And we've built entire systems, again, something that you don't find in the animal world, like a legal system that is based on this idea of rights. And we're going to talk about it in a second, a little bit more. And a political system where, where we based the idea that you have a right or a privilege or a duty because you're a person. And you have freedom or you don't have freedom because you're a person. All of this is conceptual thought. Can we find that? Can we replicate that, replicate that anywhere else in nature? Even in society, in social animals, ants, bees, termites, animals that live in colonies, animals that migrate together, do we find anything remotely close that gives us the impression that it's only a matter of degree or is it always a difference in kind? Okay? So I was going to finish this part with very quickly just reading one tiny page here and it's not even what he's writing. This is someone who wrote the introduction to his book but he summarizes a lot of the arguments here. He says, Adler would argue that what the reader is doing at this very moment, reading, reflecting, weighing, judging, is an exercise of the unique human drive to know. So to know, to want to know, this curiosity, he says, is only found in human beings. Okay? And if you think about it, you'll see no other animal has this aspiration to know. Only human beings live with the awareness of death and with the certain knowledge that they are going to die. Only human beings use their minds to become artists, scientists, historians. So each one of these requires a big topic. Why do human beings study their history? Do we think that there are other creatures that spend time trying to understand the history, you know, generations ago, who's my family, where I came from? You know, 10,000 years ago, what were we doing? What this species was doing? Okay, so this historian or scientist to explore nature or philosophers to think conceptually about different abstract things. Priests, teachers, lawyers, physicians, engineers, accountants, inventors, traders, bankers, and statesmen. Only among human beings is there a distinction between those who behave ethically and those who are Knaves, scoundrels, villains, and criminals. Do we find criminals in the animal world? Where the entire community of wolves or whatever considers one of them being criminal? Okay? Only among human beings is there any distinction between those who have mental health and those who suffer mental disease or who have mental disabilities of one sort or another. Only among human beings is there any distinction Sorry, only in the sphere of human life are there such institutions as schools, libraries, hospitals, churches, temples, factories, theaters, museums, prisons, cemeteries, and so on. Okay, and he continues, and I'll stop here. At the end of all of this, so this was just to give you a glimpse about the book, at the end of all of this, he then turns to the most abstract of the abstract thoughts, this human drive to know extends towards the absolute, towards God. 
As Adler shows at the conclusion, a denial of the distinction between degree and kind directly affects our attitude toward religion and the notion of creation because the hypothesis of an immaterial intellect is consonant with belief in the existence of a divine person. So he comes back to the idea of person. Okay, He says if we don't see the distinction as one of kind and we think it's a matter of degree, then we cannot get to a explain how a human being thinks about God. How a human being can come up with the notion of God and understand that notion. The notion of an absolute divine person. Okay? Now I'm looking at the time, it's five to nine. I'll finish this very quickly. So some of the other ideas, I won't spend too much time on it. I think the, the point is clear. I, I won't uh, comment too much, but so the big things, the big items, the big distinctions, characteristics that we find in human beings that we don't really find in the rest of the animal world include, for instance, altruism. So altruism is the idea that you behave in a way that is for the good of someone else. It may and most likely does to some degree imply that you're sacrificing something for them. Okay? Animals may do that, but they don't... It all depends on why do you do it. Do you do it out of instinct or you do it out of some moral position? If you do it out of instinct, then you will find that in, in the animal world where one individual may sacrifice themselves. A mother of other animals may attack and put herself in a situation of harm out of instinct because she doesn't do it for the other members of the clan. Or, or, or. We find that in, human na in, in the animal world. But a human being will do it based on a position, a moral, immaterial position. Another notion that we don't really think exists at all in nature. Laughter and humor. How come human beings have humor? They understand humor. Okay. And of course, this one, volumes upon volumes have written about it, language. Okay, the ability to use language. And then that, this requires a lengthy, lengthy discussion of why human language is so different than any other language. What can it do? How is it built? Can any, any other entity have anything even close to that or not? So you have very big thinkers like Chomsky who says language is actually wired in the human mind. That's the only reason we have it. There's no other way to explain it. You're born, you're wired in a certain way. You have, no, you have speech. You understand discourse and speech and it's built on these categories. And I'm going to show you how if you look at any language in the human world, it's built on these foundations. Okay, He calls them gener generative grammar. Universal generative grammar. He puts them in categories and shows how every language has the same categories. It says human beings just think this way. Convention. So why is it that, you know, today people wear pants in this way? Pants are a convention. We didn't have to wear pants. We could have been wearing robes, wearing something else. But we're wearing this. What is this? It's a social convention. 
It's a cultural convention. Do we find that in the, hum in the animal world? Are there conventions? Maybe animals sit together and discuss what we're going to do next, how we're going to make our hair or where uh, eat our food, or is it all pure instinct? Blind, pure instinct. And then, of course, and we talked a little bit about this, these very abstract notions of responsibility. Human beings understand this. We teach it to our children when they're very young. Tell them, this is your duty. You have a duty. You have a responsibility to do this. And they grasp the notion at a very young age. This, these are my toys. I take care of them. I have a duty. I have a responsibility towards these. Can we find an animal who will understand that notion? And then if you understand responsibility, then you understand accountability. You're accountable for that. If you're accountable, I can blame you. I can praise you. I can say that you're a criminal. I can say that you're acting according to your duty or not according to your duty. So you're good or bad. Right? See the notions? And these are all very abstract notions. We take for granted. This is where we say, no, no, there's a difference in kind. It's not a difference in degree in our thinking. So admiration, praise, the idea of forgiveness. Do you think that that exists in the animal world? Can animals forgive? Forgiveness means that you intentionally forgive. And you may decide not to forgive, but you understand the notion. That's what we're talking about. And then, of course, this opens the door to, I'm going to go quickly through them, consciousness. So it's one thing to say you're conscious. You're aware that you exist. You're aware that you exist and that there's a world around you that exists. That's one. Then there is what they call self-consciousness. And your ability to think in terms of subjects, which means what? Which means that you view yourself as an I. I am. I am happy. I am sad. I want. I don't want. Okay. And then you start understanding that me, as an I, is different than you. So what I see and what I feel may be different than what you see and what you feel. So that's subjectivity. Can an animal understand that? So I interpret the world in a different way than you interpret the world. This is consciousness and self-consciousness, or subjectivity. And of course, the meta-discourse, meta which is always thinking about this. The ability to think that you have subjectivity, or you have self-consciousness. And then very quickly here, art. So are there other creatures that really enjoy art? For no other reason, to enjoy art. We enjoy them artistically. But do they view what they're doing as art? Unless you've brainwashed a monkey or a, an elephant to draw something so that you make money out of that. Okay, but are they enjoying the art? They understand what it means? So art is a symbolic form. It's putting something to represent something else. And that's why human beings do it in different ways. They do it with their body. So choreography, for instance, with sculpture. They do it visually with things they paint, with things they do. They do it with their voice, with 
singing and melody and all of that. They, so for all the senses, there's something related to art. But art is symbolic. Unless you're working at a very simple level, then that's a simple level. That's when you're trying to teach a child the craft of the art, for instance. Not someone who understands what art is, right? An art critic, for instance, who understands what it means socially to create this painting and to put it in a museum and people will pay a million dollars to to get it or to just look at it. And the same thing applies to the rest of art. And the same thing we've already talked about, this conceptual thinking in philosophy, morality, so the good, the notions of good, bad, good, evil, these notions don't exist anywhere else. And then you go to spirituality. So human beings understand the notion that you can have a spiritual experience, a mystical experience. Okay? So this brings you into another dimension completely. I don't think we have time, so we're going to stop here. I was The point is was to go from here to the notion of the mind. And I didn't want to spend too much time explaining what we mean by the mind. I just wanted to go through just a number of mind activities, mind phenomena, that today they are researched, that there are a lot of university researchers and investigators looking into them. Millions of dollars are being spent on each one of these to further understand them. And the challenge is, can we explain any of them from a materialist point of view or not? Okay, and the, of course our claim is no. There's something else going on here beyond matter that falls under this notion of mind that we cannot explain just by looking at a brain and all the activities of the brain. There's more going on. It's not just brain. It's brain plus something else. So when we look at all of this, and I'll leave you with this thought, so are we saying that biology doesn't explain anything? Are we saying that the brain doesn't do anything? No. So there's a good example that we can use here. In art, since we talked about art, in art there's something called pigment theory. Okay, this is a whole field in art where they study when you, let's say you look at a canvas, okay? A painter, an artist, they painted a canvas. A very beautiful drawing of whatever with all the paints. The paints are made of, when you look very close, you go to it and you look at it, you still look at physical things and not just pixels of a screen, you're actually going to see pigmentation. You're going to see the little tiny specks that make up the color. Okay, those are called pigments. That's what we use to paint anything. Any color you look at is made of a pigmentation. If you go very close to a canvas and you look at it, what do you see? You see the pigments. Right? So let's say there is a portrait of a face. Someone's face has been painted on a canvas. When you look very close, you go very close to it and you look at it, what you're going to see are the pigments. And someone can come and tell you, because they've studied 10 years pigment theory, they can tell you all about the pigments. How they're structured, what they're made of, all of that. 
can they go with all of their knowledge about pigment theory from looking at those pigments like this to telling you what this painting does when you look at it, the face? Does the face have anything to do with the pigmentation? Right? Why? They have nothing to do. The face is made up of that pigmentation. But the face is not the pigmentation. The pigmentation, the pigments, are making up the face, but the face is not the pigments. It's an ingredient in one dimension, in one aspect. Yes, to make up that face, I need to put pigments. But I need to put pigments for any other thing that I draw. The face itself, the emotions that it triggers in me, what it represents, what it symbolizes, is not the pigments. I'll never get to the face just by looking, by concentrating on the pigments. A human being is not the biology. The biology is a constituent. It's something that makes up a part, a dimension, an aspect of the human being. We're not saying that you can get the full functionality of a human being just by having a brain. But we're saying you do need the brain. The brain is one ingredient. We're not saying we're not brains. But we're saying we need a brain and we need other ingredients. To get to the face, you need a lot of other things, but including pigmentation. The pigments are not the face. The pigments are ingredients that will get you to the face. But they have nothing to do with the real value of the face. With the real symbol that the face represents. With what the face does to you when you look at it. The point of this canvas is not the pigment. It's not the pigmentation. Whoever painted this face was not thinking about the pigments. The pigments were required, but they're a secondary matter. Okay? So this is hopefully the transition from what we're talking about right now, going from a human being now to the mind. And to what extent is are we our brains? And to what extent is there more than just the brain, this thing that is inside our cranium? Are we limited to this or not? Is there more than the brain when we say our mind or not? What are we talking about? So we're we'll mention some of the, as we call them, the mind activities that are very well known today, the research. Not everything is 100% agreed upon by everyone. A lot of this is still controversial. But it's researched by very respectable people in the world who are skeptics themselves, but they're researching them. And there's volumes upon volumes being written about all of this related to the mind. And in all, a lot of cases, and we talked about this before, just like we mentioned now with materialism and Darwinism and what Adler says, the issue is the assumptions that are made. If you've already made up your mind that this is impossible because it can't be explained with materialism, we have an issue. We need to be working with people who are at least open to the idea that there might be something more than materialism to explain the world. Otherwise, it's a dead end. There's no point to our discussion if you're already decided that there's nothing beyond materialism. Even though I'm telling you nothing that you're giving me explains any of this.
Okay? So inshallah we'll continue in the next uh, in the next lecture. We'll summarize this and we'll jump into the the mind. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala Ali Tayyibin al Tahirin. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. Wa antum.